Randall Woodfield is an American serial killer, rapist, kidnapper, and robber who was nicknamed the I-5 Killer for his crimes down the I-5 corridor through Washington, Oregon, and California. He played football growing up as a kid and ended up being drafted by the Green Bay Packers. Though he's only convicted of one murder, he has been linked to up to 18 and is suspected of having killed 44. Every career has its pluses and its minuses. story starts in the Pacific Northwest, which is one of my favorite parts of the United States, parts of the entire world. It's Vancouver, Washington. On December 9th, 1980, at 5.20 p.m., a 22-year-old female cashier at Eddie's Arco Station was robbed by a tall, dark-haired man wearing an obviously fake beard. How'd she know it was fake? The man had used gum to stick it to his face. Cashier told Clark County deputies, he showed me the small silver gun that he had, and he told me, it's for real. He then told me to empty the entire till, which remaining calm, she emptied the till, after which he told her to turn around and watch TV as he pointed the silver gun towards the surveillance camera TV. Unfortunately, that night it was malfunctioning, and the robber left without any video of him being recorded. The cashier gave his description to the police where a composite picture was drawn from the recollection. Her attacker was a dark-eyed man with a fake beard. He was tall and in good shape. He was a young man. Four days later, on October 13th in Eugene, Oregon, only 108 miles south of Vancouver, a man with a fake beard and a band-aid across the bridge of his nose walked into the Baskin Robbins on Villard Street at 6 p.m. There, he pulled out a silver pistol and robbed the clerk forcing them to give him everything from the cash register. He told the cashier, now turn around and walk into the back room and stay there. Don't do anything stupid. As she walked away from him, she fully expected to be shot in the back of the head. She walked firm and calm, thinking of her family and her friends, but he left without harming her. In her report to police, she told officers, quote, it was so strange, 15 minutes before he came in, There was a real grubby looking kid in here who told me how easy this place would be to rob. He just bought an ice cream cone and left, and then this clean cut guy comes in and robs me. Just one night later, on December 14th, two 18 year old clerks at the Arctic Circle drive-in in Albany, Oregon, watched as a bearded man made his way slowly towards them. He walked up to the drive-in window carrying an old, beat up Arctic Circle bag and a paper cup as if he had grabbed it from a trash can or dug it up from the back seat of his car. He asked the girl on duty to fill the cup with water and throw the bag away. When she came back, he asked for a new bag. She noted that as he was talking, he seemed to be observing traffic that was moving on the street. When the street was finally empty of cars, he handed the sack back to her, and in a stern voice that was somehow both a yell and a whisper, he said, fill it up. Confused and starting to feel scared, she responded, I don't understand. At that moment, she looked down, and suddenly she did understand. 
She saw that the man was pointing a silver gun directly at her heart. In this moment, understandably, she was so frightened that she couldn't even remember which buttons to push that opened the cash register. The man made off with $280 in cash. They said it was surprising at how quickly the big man was able to run away. Then, on December 21st, just four days before Christmas, a large man with a beard made his appearance more than 200 miles north of Albany, this time in Seattle, but unfortunately this time the man wanted more than money. Kim Meehan was a 25-year-old waitress at Church's Fried Chicken in Lake Forest Park, which is just north of Seattle. On this day, she was feeling sick but decided to go into work anyway, hoping to get a little bit of extra Christmas money. She tried to power through her shift and she began to feel nauseated during the early evening where she ended up calling her dad at 9 to ask if he could come pick her up. Before her father could get there, she stopped into the women's restroom to wash her face with some cold water. As she shut the door behind her and went over to the faucet, there was suddenly a loud knock on the door and she looked up to see a man pushing his way in. With a horrifying grin, he looked at her and said, excuse me, as if it were some sort of mistake, but he didn't leave. Instead, he entered the bathroom, turned around and locked the door behind him. And just a heads up, this is a sexual assault, so it's just kind of like a warning. He pulled the silver revolver from the pocket of his hooded coat and ordered her to take off her blouse. Do what I say and you won't get hurt, he told her. And this isn't, for those of you wondering, there's still other employees in the building. She is not, it's not like she was left alone to close. There's still people there. Shocked and confused and unable to really comprehend what was happening, she couldn't move. And the man who still wearing his fake beard and all, moved closer towards her, pulled up her shirt and bra, and began to fondle her. The next little part is a little bit graphic, by the way. Once he was done fondling her, he looked at her and said, now, I want you to beat me off. She responded, slowly and scared, that she didn't know how to. That wasn't gonna be enough for him. He told her, I'll show you how, and he moved the gun to her temple. She had no choice, and she did what he asked. The sick fuck responded, that was good. And now you stay here for five minutes, count to a hundred, and nobody will get hurt. Kim did what he asked. She sat, fearing that he might be on the other side of the door, listening so she didn't scream. She sat and she waited, still feeling nauseous. She diligently sat and counted for five minutes before she stood up and pounded on the wall screaming for help. One of the employees, the fry cook actually, heard her crying for help, came in to find her, and what he went on to tell police was, the guy who assaulted her was in there. He said, that, he said quote, that guy was in here. He ordered a number five dinner and paid for it. He must have seen Kim walk back into the restroom. He was wearing a hooded brown corduroy or suede jacket with sheepskin lining. Just 20 minutes later, this dipshit, he had ditched the beard, still wearing the same brown jacket, was hanging out at another Baskin Robbins in Washington, this, this time in Bothell, Washington. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know what this dude's fucking obsession with Baskin Robbins is. It's Hot take, maybe I'll lose some listeners over this. Baskin Robbins kind of sucks. Duncan is fine. Baskin Robbins sucks. Either way, he's at this ice cream. He's at this Baskin Robbins. 
and this is 20 minutes after the assault at the church's chicken. There were two teenage girls who were working that night and they were ready to lock the doors, but he was still in the lobby or like the little dining section eating his ice cream cone. They were making jokes about him and they, you know, a, a quote from it after said, maybe he's planning to mug us or something, was a joke they made amongst themselves. At that point, man got up and asked one of them to throw away the last of his cone. His next request was for some ice water, but they could only offer him tap water, which I don't know why that detail was, was significant. Either way, he took one sip out of the cup and then asked for a lid. Then he asked for a straw and a paper sack. Tell me if that sounds familiar. So these two girls, they, you know, being polite, being members of the customer service industry, gave him his lid gave him his paper bag so at that moment what does a dipshit asshole like this do pulls the silver pistol out of his jacket and says now put all the money in the bag he made away with $500 for the night and he ordered the two girls to sit on the floor and count to 50 and look the other way as he left now these two girls were very observant paid a lot of attention to him because, you know, they were making fun of him for hanging out in the lobby of a Baskin-Robbins past closing time, which, if you do that in your current life here in 2021, you also deserve to be made fun of. They noted that he did not have a car, at least not in the parking lot, and he was probably in his mid-20s, and they described him as good-looking with a full mustache and tan complexion with a thick head of dark brown curly hair. He was wearing blue jeans, a maroon and blue rugby-type shirt that had a v-neck that was trimmed in white, and the brown suede jacket with sheepskin lining was another thing they noted. So, if there was no other evidence that it was carried out by the same dude, you at least got the same jacket. Again, to remind you, this is just 20 minutes after he had assaulted Kim Meehan in the church's restroom. And luckily for these two uh, young girls, they did not get sexually assaulted. Now, this was the last robbery that had the description of fake beard, silver gun, and sheepskin jacket from December 21st till January 8th of 1981. This time again, his next attack, he hits the Eddie's Arco in Vancouver again at about 9 p.m., which is the same one from December 9th. This time, the cashier was different, but, you know, he had the same routine, silver gun, all that bullshit, made off with only $100. And now we go to Salem, Oregon, on January 18th, 1981. We're catching up to this bearded jackass as he is running away through the dark streets of Salem, described as fluid and easily moving. He would turn, dodge, dip, duck, dive, and dodge down the streets of Salem. Unfortunately, what he was running from was two bleeding women he had left behind him. Randall Woodfield would go on to be called the I-5 killer. This is where that starts. Now, 
the first part was kind of meant to be like a prologue. We're talking about Randall Woodfield, this bearded jackass, this fucking weird Baskin Robbins sitting in the lobby till closed piece of shit had just committed his first murder. It's January 18th, 1981, almost midnight. He's running away through the streets of Salem, Oregon, dodging every light he can see, every car, every street lamp, doesn't matter. He's treating it like he's on the damn playing field. Now, what's he running from, you might be asking. Don't worry, we'll get to it. What he had done was, he had orchestrated what he likely probably thought was a perfect plan. He had watched these two girls shut down for work. He had sat. He had just been the definition of a creep sitting in the dark. He is the monster that you're afraid of. And he had gotten away with not a single witness. Or at least, that's what he thought. Eventually, he got so far away from running, he stopped and he walked, appreciating what he had done. It's at this time that the Salem Fire and Ambulance Dispatch Hotline rings, and a woman named Zena Harp and Dave Cameron were working the shift that night. According to them, the night had been very boring up until that point. It's cold, it's January, it's a Sunday. They've had nothing to do so far. It's 9.54 when the phone rang. On the phone, they heard a woman's voice, faint and losing breath, full of pain, saying, we've been shot, please help us. Zena wasn't, wasn't used to receiving this phone call. She wasn't used to hearing this tone of voice. So she, staying calm, she had to find out the location, she had to find out everything, because you can tell, she could tell, that this there was only the slightest margin of error and she wasn't willing to risk it. She asked the woman on the phone, where are you? And unfortunately she was met with a long pause. Luckily, the voice did come back even more faint this time saying River Road, we're on River Road or Commercial Street. Now, Dave didn't know exactly where the call was coming from, but his goal was to get close enough because he knew kind of like those crossroads, he, he wanted to get close enough that he could then actually patch in the emergency service response from Kaiser, K-E-I-Z-E-R. I believe it's a town near Salem. And through that, he would be able to actually pinpoint the location so that he could get the telephone operator to do an emergency trace. And how Dave did it actually ended up he was right. His, his whole way of thinking was right. Within moments, the operator was able to tell that the call was coming from within the Transamerica title building. That gave them, that that's all they needed. They needed the location. And Dave then asked the operator to patch and call in the Salem Police Department Communication Center. From there, both Salem Police and Kaiser Fire, like the, their fire department, would be able to get as many resources to this building as possible. So while Dave is trying to figure out how they can get ambulances and cops into that building, 
Zena Harp has to stay on the phone with this woman in what I can only imagine would just be a horrifying phone call to be on the other side of, to be on either side of, really. On the other end of the phone, the woman begged, saying, please hurry, he's gonna come back and kill me. I think she's dead. I actually have no idea what, like, the application process is for somebody to be like an emergency response phone operator, but Zena Harp, shout out to her. She's remaining calm. She's trying to keep keep this woman on the other end who's been shot calm. She says, she asks politely, she says, do you want me to stay on the line? You know, like, will this, will this help? Telling her that an ambulance is on the way. And the girl on the other end said, kept saying, oh, I think she's dead. Once the Salem police dispatch had been tapped into the call, Zena handed like the phone over, over the line. She handed the phone over to a woman named Liz Cameron, who I have no idea if she is related to Dave Cameron. Either way, now Liz Cameron is on the line with the girl who has been shot. So we've got an ambulance on the way, but Liz is still trying to figure out as much information as she can from this woman because she doesn't know if she's going to die and she needs to know who shot her, what happened, all of that. So Liz starts the call saying, you know, asking what is your name to the woman who had been shot. And she responded, my name is Beth Wilmot. I've been shot in the head. Please hurry. When asked by Liz who had shot her, Beth responded and said, Some man, I don't know, he shot me with a gun. We were cleaning the office and he just came in. She goes on to give a description of the man from what she could remember. He had dark brown hair. He had a band-aid on his nose and he was about 27 years old. And in this moment, I, I don't think this is anything maybe a listener can identify with this, but to kind of like have the awareness and the bravery to stay on this phone as you have a bullet in your skull and try and give as much information as you can after going through something so traumatic, she deserves all the credit in the world. She goes on to describe him as maybe 5'9", maybe 6 foot. She couldn't really remember his height, but she had a good enough physical description of hair, skin color, you know, band-aid, potential age, all of these things. And this is kind of one of those things I've heard. I don't know if anybody here has listened to any like released phone calls from like police calls. They can be, they can be a hard listen sometimes because you hear such like panic in the people's voice. But every time I listen to them, they'll be like, oh, we have an emergency. And the person like on the operating line, they're always like, it always seems like they're not too empathetic towards the person who is calling, but the way that this this book puts it, Cameron's questions might seem harsh, but she was sending policemen into an area where they might well be perfect targets. They had to know who their enemy was. So she might not be as comforting really as Zena seemed, but she's trying to find out as much information because she wants to get whoever did this powering through like i said having a bullet in her skull beth goes on to tell liz 
that he was wearing a leather coat and what she described as a cheap pair of jeans, which I, I don't know why I found that slightly amusing, that bullet in the head, she's still able to roast this dude because he, deser he deserves it. So, description. Five, nine to six feet tall, white, curly brown hair, leather jacket, band-aid on the nose, cheap pair of jeans. Now at this point, Beth is fairly certain that she's going to die, and she asks Liz if she could give her a number so that Liz could call Beth's parents and tell them what happened. Liz wasn't going to let her off the line though, and she went on to tell her, I'd like to keep you on the line, if I could, until a deputy arrives and make sure you are alright. Beth goes on to tell her, Ow, oh god, my head hurts, please hurry, it hurts. This was followed by a long pause where Liz wondered if Beth had finally died. In what I can only imagine is like the longest probably 10 seconds of either of their lives, Liz hears Beth say, I hear an ambulance. I'm so hurt. I hear an ambulance. Liz says, just stay on a minute more. Beth goes on to say, poor Shari is going to die. So at this point, the ambulance is there, and they're looking for him. But Liz is still trying to keep Beth on the phone as much as possible, if it means saving her life. Beth says, please talk to me. You'll make me feel better. And Beth, this whole time, in what I think is one of the saddest lines, she says, I should go home now, but I hurt. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to anybody who's listening. Obviously, you know, it means the absolute world to me. I was taking a look at my statistics on episodes and all of that. And I've only told a couple of people about like in my, in my close circle, I've only told a couple of people about the podcast and episodes and all of that. Either way, saw on my analytics page that I have like, 15 unique listeners which is crazy you know because i think i count as one of them and then only like two other people in my personal life know about this so shout out to the other 13 of you that are potentially listening and everything like that if you have any interest in telling me what you think i could or couldn't do better or just want to follow an instagram page stay up to date with anything i do have an instagram it is plus minus pod so plus minus p-o-d you should see the same cover art and i'd love for you to to reach out dm me say what's up whatever you want also i finally got finally got this approved on apple Podcasts. so spotify doesn't let you do reviews or anything like that but apple podcast does if you think it's a one-star show feel free to tell me i'm genuinely curious if not i would love to to get a review and hear some sort of feedback tell me what you like tell me what you don't like because just the fact that you bothered to listen i feel like you deserve to have your opinion heard And it's just so sad that that to me sticks out because she's so confused with like her. She's 
essentially blaming herself that she isn't home. She's she's saying that I don't know. I don't know. Still on the phone, Beth says that her friend's name is Shari Hull, and Shari's the one who is dying, the one who, according to her, she says he shot her three times, and they were, we'll talk about what exactly happened, but the other terrifying thing about this phone call is the entire time Beth keeps saying that she's, you know, terrified that he's going to come back and finish what he started. In another moment of clarity, when Liz asked if she saw anybody, you know, exit a vehicle or did she see some like what like did she see anything suspicious before this took place? Beth couldn't remember a car like seeing one, but what she could remember is that Shari had started her own car, which was a green Ford Bronco, because they were getting ready to clock out. So according to like witnesses of the scene and everything like that, at this point, ambulances and fire and police, all of that had arrived at the scene, but this building has glass windows on all four sides. So they know they have two wounded victims inside the building and they have a general description of what this guy might look like. So their concern with having all these windows is that he might still be in the building and that he could see them come in it's dark whatever and essentially ambush them and now insert a guy by the name of reserve deputy greg roach he was the first guy who had actually made it to the transamerica title building that night after the phone call so having just you know only a little bit of information about the situation he looks into you know some of these windows and he sees a naked woman in the main office as she was walking toward an officer who had also snuck in the southwest corner. From his account, he continued to kind of like look in. He saw a second woman lying naked, face down. Around her head was a pool of blood. Beth was in so much shock when she was found that she wasn't even aware she was naked. And as the paramedics tried to put a blanket around her, she looked at them with very confused eyes, according to their accounts. They said as they made eye contact with her, they could see that her face was beaten, swollen, and that one of her eyes was already closed from being hit. And that's all before the fact that they noticed that right next to her ear, blood was pouring out of a bullet wound. When paramedics got to Sherry Hull, she was in she was in much worse condition. She was comatose and that she had three gunshot wounds to the head. Attempting to save her life, they lifted her and immediately started putting oxygen into her lungs and they got her on a gurney, got her in an ambulance, and she was rushed to Salem Memorial Hospital. Beth was still awake as they got her into the ambulance where she gave an account of what happened. And this is Beth's exact account of how it all went down. She said, We were almost finished. Shari went outside to her car and I had a little cleaning left to do. 
I was just rounding a corner, going toward the entrance, when I saw Shari and this man walking toward me. He had a long barreled gun in his right hand. He took us to a room and told us to take off all of our clothes and that he wouldn't hurt us. He made us lie down on the floor and we did that. And then he shot Shari in the head and then he shot me. I pretended to be dead, but I could hear Shari moaning. Then I heard another shot and then the man left. When I was pretty sure he was gone, I crawled to the phone in the office and called the fire department. When a detective asked if she had ever seen the man before, she just said no. After giving another description of what he looked like, she asked, is Shari going to be all right? Is she gonna die? She was breathing so funny and moaning and she couldn't talk to me. Is Shari gonna die? Shari's skull had been fractured on the right side. Bullets had plowed into the left side of her neck and the right side of her skull three inches above her right ear, as well as the back of her head. She had a fourth wound that looked to be an exit wound and fragments had entered the right temple and virtually obliterated the center of her brain. Shari had light hair and when they looked at the back of her head, they could see that Randall stood so close with the barrel that it had burnt the hair on the back of her head when he fired the weapon. So at this point, Beth, she's been taken to a hospital. She's having a moment to herself and this, she's recovering from surgery and all of that and her room is under guard. Shari at this point is confirmed to be dead but the police still have questions for Beth about what happened that night according to Beth she had known Shari for some time and the two of them were just working for Shari's father's janitorial service just kids looking for a little bit of a job especially one where you can work with your friend that's that's kind of the goal right now I'm gonna get to the part where it's Beth's second statement on what happened that night and there's some there's some very very graphic parts that I will I'll try and I'll give you a heads up before I do it but when asked more about what happened that night Beth says we went out there at about 9 10 or 9 15 and we were all done cleaning in about 20 minutes but then I noticed that a window was dirty and I went to the back room to get a spray bottle the man must have saw us cleaning alone Kashari went to empty the garbage alone, and she had done that without telling me. We usually empty it together. I got done vacuuming, and she had just got done cleaning and emptying the garbage. I went back to the back room to get the spray bottle, and she was near the door or something, and when I got to her, he was there pointing the gun at both of us. So this is a heads up about some graphic details coming up. It does have to do with sexual assault, if you do want to skip or something like that. Beth said he forced them into the lunchroom, which she said is the only room that is non-observable, but you remember we were kind of describing the building. It has glass windows all around it and everything. She said that this is the one room where nobody could see in. Once he got them in the back room, he said, both of you take off all of your clothes, strip all of them get down and stay down. Shari was hoping to scare him off and said, my dad will be here pretty soon. 
but it didn't do anything. I'm not going to go into the exact details that the book goes into because it does give a very graphic, it gives the true statement that Beth gave. If you have any interest in reading it for yourself or finding the details, the book is called The Hunt for the I-5 Killer. Check it out. It's phenomenal. Beth said that her and Shari, he told them to take their clothes off and both of them were hesitant, but he then went on to make both of them give him oral sex as well as forcing them to masturbate in front of him. At which point, he told them to both stand up so that he could rape them. This whole ordeal lasted 20 minutes, but felt like hours. When he was done, he told them to get face down on the ground and told them that he needed rope to tie them up. Both of them said no, and Shari again begged and asked, please don't hurt us. Beth said he stood over them for five minutes, staring at them. And then suddenly the silence ended when a gunshot rang off that hit Shari in the back of the head. She couldn't remember exactly how many times or how many gunshots she heard after the first one, her ears wouldn't stop ringing. But after five minutes, she stood up and she walked trying to find the nearest phone. On her way to finding the phone, she walked past a mirror where she could see the damage that the bullet had done to her. In a quote from Beth to the detective, she said, do you know what my last words were to Shari? The very last words? I said, ah shit, Shari, we forgot to clean the door. And her last words to me were, ah shit, let's do them. Detectives said if Beth and Shari had left just a few smudges on the door, they would have been able to leave the Transamerica building safely and would have gone off in Shari's Bronco driving away from the parking lot before the killer could get to them. So who was Randall Woodfield? Who was, like, what does this have to do with sports? It's a fair question you might be asking. So just a general breakdown of who Woodfield was. He, in terms of sports, we'll get into his, we'll get into his biography and everything like that here in this next part. Sports wise, he was drafted in the 1974 NFL draft to Unfortunately, my Green Bay Packers, which is similar to the Jose Canseco thing, where, uh, of course, the team I like has to has to be associated somehow with some piece of shit. Either way, he's drafted 1974, 17th round. Overall, he's the 428th pick. He never plays a single down in the NFL, not a single snap, no catch, no NFL stats at all. But that's kind of the connection we've got here. So we'll talk more about his biography, who he was growing up and all of that right now. But I just wanted to throw that in in case anybody listening was like, I don't I don't really like this. I want to hear about sports. Unfortunately, this one is not sport heavy at all. He's a fucking. He's a dud in terms of any sort of sport activity but he is just such a piece of shit such like a historic and like 
he's a woman hater he's uh like you know he's got all his mommy issues and things like that we'll have a ton a ton to make fun of this dude for because he is just the fucking worst he was born into a loving home with educated upper middle class parents where he was the son of Walter Jack that's that's his nickname Walter Jack Woodfield and his mother Donna Jean who fell in love they got married they he literally comes from the upbringing that shouldn't breed such a piece of shit unless you choose to be a piece of shit which is exactly what Randall does also, no offense to any anybody listening whose name might be Randall, but Randall's just a fucking dog shit name. Jack Woodfield, you know, Randall's dad, he was an employee at the Pacific Northwest Bell Company. It's a phone company, either way. It, sorry, the wording in my script, I, I wrote it weird. He ends up being very successful, like we said, upper middle class, suburban family and all of that. And he worked there, Jack did, for about 30 years. So he probably, especially like growing up in that time frame, he probably ended up getting paid like $100,000 to do fucking nothing. And growing up, Randall had two sisters, uh, Susan and Nancy, which Jack didn't like, you know, this era you know, fathers want to have a son, want to have a man's man, you know, either way, they kept trying until they had a son, and they got Randall, so Randall Brent Woodfield was born December 26th, 1950, Donna went into birth on, or excuse me, Donna went into labor on Christmas Day, where she was said to have thought that that was a sign that she would give birth to a special child. Yeah, really, really special indeed, Donna. You really hit a fucking home run on that one. Solid, solid prediction. At the time, his mother was 24 years old and his father was 27. Also, Randall prefers to be called Randy, and so as a result, I will be calling him Randall for the entire episode. A woman who babysat him as a kid said, quote, He was very quiet. I remember that I worried sometimes because he was almost too good. Too quiet. It's said that Randall's hatred of women started with his mother and his sisters because his mom allowed his sisters, like, he grew up in a loving household. Don't let, don't let anything confuse you, but... His older sisters were said to have doted on him, and they treated him like a big doll, is a quote from the book. Take that for whatever meaning you might. I assume they probably dressed him up and put makeup on him, whatever. I had two older sisters, too. Growing up, Randall and his family, the Woodfields, moved from Salem to Corvallis, and then to a place called Otter Rock, Oregon, which is where they stayed for some time. Jack and Donna wanted to raise, quote, the all-American boy, which, so, you know, that means move him to the suburbs, get him tutors, get him to a good college. I don't fucking know. What even is an all-American boy? Either way, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna end up like that. Growing up, 
uh, family, friends, and all of that say that Randy began to act out at a pretty young age in what is described as a household heavily weighted with females uh, because his father works long hours as he, quote, rose rapidly through the hierarchy of management in the Pacific Northwest Bell Telephone Company. Which, yeah, means he probably ended up getting paid $100,000 to do fucking nothing. Randall, of course, was a little bitch about everything. He complained that his sisters were allowed to do things he wasn't, and the explanation that, while they were older, seemed to only enrage him. Randall would just sit in his room and throw little fits where he thought that girls could do anything they wanted to do and he had to become this this all-american boy where he just wanted to i don't even know there's not even an example of what pissed him off so much also pretty bold of randall to think that somehow women had it better in the 1950s than men did i don't think that that uh i don't think that holds up randall I guess one explanation that says one thing he hated the most was that he had to have a babysitter and his sisters didn't, which again, it's like, bro, you're probably like eight and they're like 13. Like, yeah, they don't fucking need a babysitter. You're a kid. You're eight, dude. This story from that same babysitter, he rebelled against, he, he rebelled against me and he demanded to be left alone. His sisters would go on to say that when they were left alone, like if they were left to babysit him, he would explode in jealousy at them, pick fights with them, try and pick on them, try and like payback for them being older. It makes no fucking sense. Like any true psychopath, he was infuriated when Susan and Nancy would tease him and then he would be and then he would get tattled on according to this and then he would be punished. And so, of course, somehow that that leads to him becoming the I5 killer. Randall said that discipline that came from his mom was not physically painful but would be humiliating. He said that he was torn early on his between he was torn between his desire to be quote a good boy for his mother and his anger at her because it seemed impossible to meet what he considered to be her expansive and unrealistic goals for him. But you know, he would go on to say also that the relationship he had with his mother was quote real good. I'm closer to my mother than I am my father. Woodfield Nothing would ever change his perspective. He spent his entire young adult life misperceiving women, um, assuming that they were... He, he overvalued them and then degraded himself in comparison. He's one of those dudes, I know you can picture him, that his self-esteem comes solely from either how many women he's having sex with, how women perceive him, whatever you know the dude i'm talking about someone came to mind and if someone didn't come to mind and you kind of look at this dude and you're like well he's kind of got a point you're probably him all reports about him say he was great in school 
great in sports and him and his father participated in what randy excuse me randall described as quote a lot of father-son activities he would be described quote as a boy that any family would be proud of so the woodfields they're living in oregon otter rock whatever the fuck they're described as good neighbors and quote pillars of the community an exceptionally nice family now i'm assuming kind of like i got my information the source says that randall continued to validate his own worth by how well he met donna jean's expectations and i expect i assume that to be true but disclaimer i don't actually know if i like a psychologist came to that conclusion either way it makes sense when you think about it so here we go randall in middle school he's only growing more and more frustrated with the fact that his sisters are in high school it's insane to me reading this is completely insane because it legitimately seems like he is just mad that he is younger than his sisters he was so infuriated by the fact that they could get their driver's license that he would lock himself in his room when they would go and drive to go hang out with their friends Meanwhile, this whole time, he's succeeding in pretty much every sport, track, baseball, basketball, and football, according to his coaches. His father began a giant scrapbook of pictures and clippings that detailed Randy's success, excuse me, Randall's success, and eventually, he would have three scrapbooks thick with Randall's honors, which is weird. I don't know. Maybe you guys grew up with a, with a dad who, who supported you, but... I don't at any point in my life want three scrapbooks filled with my child's successes. I don't know. I'm all for supporting your kids. I'll make maybe one scrapbook. Just condense it a little bit, you know? All right. So he's got the scrapbooks. He's succeeding. He's doing it. He's, you know, Randall is trying his darndest to be the all-American boy his mom, Donna Jean, wants him to be junior high. Boom. First, uh, first demonstration of sexual deviance. Now, what, is, uh, what does a kid in junior high do? Uh, well, he just whips his dick out in public. That's what. Again, another quote. Seems like it could have been taken from a psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever. Um, through exhibitionism, quote, he could only demonstrate that he was male. He could not only demonstrate that he was male, but also subconsciously get back at his mother, who seemed to demand perfection that he could not deliver. And I'm going to read this quote directly, and maybe this is me being, uh, being immature, but the writing of it, I just found humorous. Quote, the instances of exposure were seldom isolated. Randy would expose his erect organ to a woman on one side of Newport, revel in her reaction, and then sprint to other areas and find still more victims. Which, when I read that, I just, I just pictured, like, a very cartoonish, like, animated creep, like, laughing as he skips away, just, like, closing his trench coat, dick slapping against his legs as he just like, giggles. The kid's, like, 13. Now, I suppose the good part about living in a small town 
it's pretty easy to recognize the kid and he was he was caught pretty quick for these instances but we uh clearly that's not where our story ends there was no real punishment and he wasn't referred to treatment or anything like that i mean this is probably like 1963 something like that if he's born in 1950 and he's in middle school doing this please just look the other way now we end up getting a lot of quotes about how randy grew up from one of his friends a guy named mike schaefer who actually still lives well at the time of whenever this book was written um in newport which is close to that otter cave otter rock wherever wherever we said newport is the bigger city or so and mike schaefer childhood friend of randall still lives there shout out to you mike schaefer a teacher at newport school when he was interviewed about it, Schaefer said he cannot comprehend that Randall would ever hurt anyone, much less kill someone. Also, when asked, Schaefer said Woodfield was not a quote, kiss and tell dater. Uh, so Schaefer never knew what sexual contacts Randy Randall might have had. I think I've slipped up a couple of times. He doesn't deserve to be called Randy. One creepy quote from Schaefer about Randall, he said, he had a good relationship with his parents, but whenever he did anything wrong, his mother always knew. He goes on to tell a quick story, quote, He threw a party once when his folks were out of town. He was really careful and he put throw rugs and plastic over the carpet so there wouldn't be any damage done. And then he rounded up a crew of girls to stay around after the party to clean up. The place was just immaculate afterward, but when his mother got home, she knew. She just seemed to know everything he was doing. So yeah, shocker to no one, especially based off the start of his biography. Dude has serious mommy issues. He was a good student, it said. So now we're getting into high school. He's a good student and supposedly was really good at math. And he, he, he tried hard to be much more than just a dumb jock. As a junior, he was all state in football and then he did it again as a junior he wasn't an all-state in basketball but did receive an honorable mention played baseball he was a sprinter uh, on the track team he i mean dude is dude is an athlete so the next kind of part about the, the part about this this book that talks about his like football career and success is confusing to me it kind of seems like the person who wrote it doesn't know a ton about scouting or, or going going pro. He was a wide receiver when he played, and according to everybody around him, his one goal was to eventually play professional football, and nobody around him thought that he couldn't make it, so to speak. So a quote from Randy, he said in his senior year, he was recruited for sports scholarships by, quote, all the major colleges in the Northwest. And then the author, this is kind of what I mean, goes on to say, and there is no evidence to dispute that. So, according to this right now, Randy should be getting offers from places like University of Washington, University of Oregon, Oregon State, probably Washington State. I'm not sure if Washington State was that big of a program back then. Sounds like he should be getting some D1 offers, right? 
Either way, it sounds like he doesn't commit to any of these places, and he spends the summer after graduating from high school working for the Pacific Northwest Bell Company, just like his dad, driving trucks, cleaning, repairing, uh, telephone booths, whatever the fuck, just doing summer work. And then, in the fall of 1969, he enrolls in Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon. Which is, this is exactly what I mean. Either he wasn't recruited by any of these schools and he actually wasn't that good in high school, or, I don't know, there's no reason for him to enroll at a community college if he's getting a scholarship from even any of even just one of the major schools in the northwest like he said he was so here at community college we get another example of randall moving towards more serious crimes so you remember he's flashing his little dick all around town and now he gets caught stealing some cassette tapes from somebody in another dorm and all these stories are being told by the same guy, Mike Schaefer, by the way. So the dude he stole these tapes from, I knows somehow that it is Randall, and he's like, dude, I know you have my fucking tapes. Randall's like, bro, no idea what you're talking about. Sounds like he's the only suspect. Eventually, the dude finally is like, somehow, some way, Rand Randall is forced to confess to the dorm proctor that he had stolen these tapes and he had to give them back. So Randall gets caught stealing tapes and then at this time, Schaefer tells the story of how Randall was broken up with by his girlfriend at Treasure Valley, a woman named Sharon McNeil. And that just sent Randall over the edge. You know, how dare he be rejected, right? Schaefer would say that Randall could not handle Randall couldn't handle uh, Sharon's rejection and Randall it's allegations supposedly that he broke into her home in on August 3rd of 1970 and trashed her entire house entry was supposed to have been made he entered through um, a bathroom window and the only thing that was stolen was a stuffed animal that Sharon had been it was a gift from Randall to Sharon. Only thing that's stolen is this little stuffed animal. He actually gets arrested and charged with this, goes to a jury trial, and he's found not guilty, because I guess probably just wasn't a ton of evidence, just the one thing that was stolen. At the same time, again, it's alleged, but there were supposedly incidents of more exposing here in Ontario, Oregon also. Chances are I'm willing to say they're true, but have to say allegedly because he was never charged. So after all of this, Randall's like, all right, time to hit the old dusty trail. And he transfers to Mount Hood Community College for one term. Which again, I'm sitting here reading this and it's like, if this dude was so good, why didn't he transfer to any D1 program or even like D2, you know what I mean? So, like the psychopath he is, he transfers, but doesn't really necessarily uh, stop caring about Sharon, and he, quote, continued to bombard the young woman with letters and phone calls, in which, to the point, Sharon had to obtain an unlisted phone number, 
which I have no idea what that means. Probably has something to do with like a phone book. I have no idea. According to Sharon, she, one of the things that he sent her was a letter. She says, I received a letter from Randall containing a nude photograph of himself. The final message was a Christmas card in December of 1980. So again, Mike Schaefer, he transferred from Treasure Valley at about the same time Randall did. He went to Southern Oregon College. Ooh, I can't remember. I didn't put it in my notes. Mike Schaefer transfers to a different university than where Randall did. And so they're communicating all this time. And according to him, Randall would send him a ton of letters where he sounded, quote, quite religious and was quoting the Bible. It just wasn't him, not the Randy I knew. Around the same time, during the summer, uh, Randall got a new girlfriend. And I will say girlfriend in quotes because it's an eighth grader and her name is Tracy Connors. He's in college. When asked about it, Tracy said that it had been a case of platonic hero worship. She was only in the eighth grade. He's a college guy, you know, football star. I, I'm still putting, I'm putting star in quotes at this point. Tracy's like 14, Randall's like 20. So one night over the summer, Randall's parents are out of town. He invites her over. She says she drank two beers with him and was thrilled when he kissed her. However, Randall is a pedophile and tried to, you know, have sex with her, which she stood up for herself. She said no. She refused and she said she, quote, she said, I don't do things like that. She said he went on to just say, okay, and then kind of pouted and left the room where she slept all night in a different bed while he slept in his room. She said this is the last time that they had hung out and that, well, we'll get to it. He, again, maintains communication with her. It's, it's weird. One of the things that Randall tried to do with Tracy was he tried to convince her to convince Sharon to take him back, which, I mean, fucking Randall, dude. So Randall obviously doesn't get back with Sharon, but according to Tracy, he would continue. He, he, he left the summer, you know, goes back to college, whatever. And he would send her letters, X, Y, or Z, whatever. But he would continue to send her letters well until after she had graduated high school and had gotten married. So let's fast forward to the spring of 1971. He's 21 years old and... Randall Woodfield had now he he's not making it to the league obviously but he is quote far behind the carefully programmed schedule he had set for himself to play big league ball at this point he believed he should have been playing first string varsity on a pack eight team which is crazy that like now it's the pack 12 for those of you who don't know pack is short for pacific um it's just a division of NCAA D1 sports it's like there's it's a conference so to speak so he thought he should be playing for a Pac-8 team specifically the University of Washington Huskies or the University of Oregon Ducks 
Which, again, I'll reiterate, if this dude was really that good, like he said he was, why wasn't he playing for these guys? He, he claimed to be receiving scholarship offers from all of these schools. I don't know. Something tells me this dude's probably wasn't that good. Either that or the people in Newport had never seen anybody be even half decent at football. And they all believe that, oh, this dude's going to go fucking pro. So in the spring 1971, Randy registers for classes at Portland State University, which was not in the Pac-8. And I think they're only D1 in like basketball. I could be wrong. They're not a huge school either way. Playing for a college like this essentially means like not, I, I don't know what it was like back then, but nowadays not a ton of people are drafted from universities that are this small. So this entire time he starts there, he starts there in 1971 and goes through the winter semester of 1973. He majored in health education and physical education and was a fine student, according to his transcripts, I suppose. <laughs> health education and physical education. Yeah, I was just studying to be a fucking gym teacher. Which, no offense to anybody who might be listening that either is a gym teacher or is going to school for health education or physical education. Teammates of his at the time described him as a valuable member of the team, valuable wide receiver who could be counted on to perform. And that's that's pretty much about it in terms of scouting report. The thing about Randy that's most, most worth noting at Portland State is like any psychopath, he turns to religion. Teammates described Randy as, quote, soft-spoken and mild-mannered. Very, very religious. He was a member of the Portland State University Campus Crusade for Christ and the Fellowship for Christian Athletes. He was known to tell people that he only dated, quote, Christian girls. Also, you know, like a, like a fair majority of, uh, of Christians, I suppose, he was an exhibitionist. Still, that didn't change anything. Still a deviant. The author of this book put in a quote, quote, he had the whole of Portland to rove in, and he only had to drive across the bridge over the Columbia River in his old Volkswagen to be in Vancouver, Washington. I just thought, I thought the term rove when describing a uh, a sexual predator's like field, I guess, like potential area of operation, I thought Rove was a little bit too uh, too cavalier. Could have used a different different verb. It wasn't long before he uh, he got arrested. His first adult arrest occurred in Vancouver, Washington, on August seventh, nineteen seventy two where he was charged with indecent exposure and was convicted. But this is an all-American boy, right? He received only a suspended sentence, which, great. Reminds me a lot of Art Schleister. Schleister. I mean, completely different, but how Art, if you listen to that episode, check it out. If you didn't check it out, but how he got off with everything pretty much just because he was a hometown kid. Luckily for him and his, uh, campus crusade buddies uh this never 
news of this never really reached campus and he was able to maintain his Mr. Clean image. This whole time he is also carrying, he's carrying journals and like grabbing mementos from all of his like born again Christian journeys, his crusades, whatever, what have you. One of the quotes in one of his journals is, he has three goals written in this journal and they are quote, to be successful in school, two, to reach the highest honors I could in my range of athletics, and three, to be popular with all the girls. That's fucking embarrassing, dude. I don't know if he thought pretending to be Christian was gonna get him laid or something like that. I think that only works if you're a Catholic priest. Either way, he testified that he had turned away from religion because he thought his life was more exciting without the rules and regulations that constrained his friends. This whole time though, he's still, it's weird. He still has like these journals. I'm not sure if like the timeline on him turning away from Christianity is fuzzy. Sounds like he was still a member of all these, all these groups, but he was caught and arrested again on June 22nd, 1973, this time in the Portland area. And just go ahead and guess what he was charged with. You got it. Indecent exposure, resisting an officer, and attempting to elude arrest. In court, he put on the uh, the all-American, you know, Christian altar boy persona. Described as repentant in court. Didn't matter really. Judge at least sentenced him this time to five months and 25 days in jail. But he didn't serve it. Of course not. Why would he? Uh, he also got one year probation. And the resisting an officer charge was dropped. And what would you know? It's crazy. It seems like these, uh, these sexually deviant people like to do things more than once. On February 22nd, 1974, he was arrested again for public indecency. And this time, five year probation. We'll see how that works out. Part of his probation, counseling was mandatory, but he never followed up on it. Why would he? They didn't force him to. Fuck it. And here we go. Time to make it to the league, baby. After the 1973 football season at Portland State, Randall Woodfield's dreams came true. He heard the choir singing, angels on high, he was drafted to the Green Bay Packers, baby. I don't know if uh, if Randy bothered to celebrate. I'm sure his form of celebration expo involved him uh, him whipping his dick out. But he described it as he was not being drafted to some loser team. He was being drafted to the best, the very best. The Green Bay Packers wanted him. That's his. That's from his journal or whatever the hell. So there's there's some details about his contract, which is pretty interesting. You know, 1974, you don't really hear much about it. The way that it's worded is, the Packers agreed to pay him, quote, a skilled football player salary of $16,000 for the period extending from the date of the signing, which was February, February 20th, 1974, until the first May following the close of the 1974 season. 
So I'm assuming that's May of uh, 1975. So $16,000 a year in 1974 money. Let's do some quick conversion, see what that is. If my interpretation of the contract is correct, $16,000 in 1974 would equal $86,670 in 2021. Congrats, Randall. Don't blow it, kid. He blows it, by the way. The contract goes on. In addition, he could receive board and room as well as traveling expenses during preseason training as well as during the regular season. There were bonuses for him as well. Uh, there was a $3,000 bonus going in. I'm assuming that's a signing bonus. And if Randy could survive the cuts and become a member of the 47-man roster of the 1974 season, he would receive an additional $2,500. Not bad. Another bonus, if he were to catch 25 passes within a regular NFL season, uh, he would receive an additional $2,000, and if he caught 30 passes, he would get $3,000. Other uh, stipulations of the contract also said that Randy was obligated to keep himself in excellent physical condition, avoid any drinking of intoxicants. That's crazy. I don't know if I would have been able to do it stay away from gamblers and gambling resorts, and wear a coat and necktie in hotel lobbies, public eating places, and all public conveyances. It was also required that, quote, he could not write or sponsor magazine or newspaper articles, nor endorse any product or service, nor participate in any radio or television programs without permission of the Green Bay Packers which I'm sure there's there's probably a modern variation of that. That seems kind of standard. So here it is. He makes it to the league. A big congrats to you, Randall. Uh, he has to go down to Arizona in that same year to start training camp, and the meeting is to be held in Phoenix on April 4th. And the Packers, you know, they fly him out, travel, lodging, whatever, and his career would start. So his first meeting goes well. He goes back to Port the, the one in Arizona. Then he goes back to Portland. And all is all is seeming good. He's getting good communication, good letters, and things like that. Supposedly at this time there's a threat of a players union strike, but they all the Packers are telling him, no, 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 don't worry about it. You know, we're looking forward to what we can do together. But ooh, sorry, Randall. Packers, turns out, did not want him, uh, and he was cut from the traveling squad. Suck a dick, bud. The excuse they gave him for cutting him was that he was better at catching passes, and the Packers were looking to incorporate more running plays in their playbook. Now, I guess the Packers have been, uh, have been asked about this since he developed some sort of notoriety, and Randy also goes on to say that he thinks he was cut because he wasn't playing confidently enough and he said he went out quote too wide for passes that just tippled on his fingers and then dropped to the ground this uh you know is i guess some sort of insult if you take it that way uh the author of this book wrote oddly for an athlete whose best skill was in catching passes 
Randall Woodfield has incongruously small hands. They back up that claim by saying that in photographs, he usually poses casually with his hands behind his back. I mean, I'm assuming they're implying he's, he's hiding his hands, but I don't know. I wasn't alive in 1974. Maybe that's something people looked at. What should come as a shock to nobody, uh, the Green Bay Packers will not comment on why he was cut. The Green Bay Police Department also won't release any records that might have to do with, uh, with Randall, but Detective Dave Komenek, I'm assuming he works for, it doesn't cite what police department he works for, so uh, there are said to have been 10 and 20 incidents of indecent exposure in Wisconsin involving yours truly, Randall Woodfield. One Wisconsin detective commented off the record, he couldn't keep the thing in his pants. So, with nothing left for him in Wisconsin, poor baby Randall packed up and returned to Portland. So back in Portland, Randall's doing a whole lot of nothing. He's catching up with all his friends or whatever. He was almost 25 at this point, and pretty much all of his friends were married, started families, all of that, you know, taking steps into the adult world. His buddy, Mike Schaefer, was a school teacher. Sounds like he still is, according to whatever I referenced it when we introduced him. Still a teacher. Good for you. Now, tell me if you think it's a coincidence. In the first months of 1975, Portland police were dealing with an inherently explosive situation. Several women had been accosted at knife point by a man who prowled Dunaway Park and uh, their attacker had exposed himself and then forced his victims to fillet him. Coincidence? Portland police trying to catch it, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. They set up a couple of stakeouts, but he doesn't, he doesn't approach any of the male officers, and so they decided they have to put in a female officer as a decoy. So this is another added to probably a mile long list why i would never be a cop but this just seems so terrifying like going undercover the story is policewoman annette john volunteered for the assignment and she was aware that her safety could not be guaranteed because she's walking in a park it's 1975 probably not a ton of technology to really you know keep her in solid communication with whoever's watching her she was instructed to walk down the uh, deserted pathways of the park while backup officers watched from a distance. She was given $8 which, with which the serial numbers had been recorded so they could keep an eye, try and track them if they could. And she ended up walking through the park on several occasions, but nothing happened. They thought they were potentially wasting their time until shortly after noon on, uh, on Wednesday, March 5th, 1975, she was walking through the abandoned park again, and this time she could tell something was off, something was different. Part of her going undercover, so to speak, was she was told to look like a victim. You know, she was instructed to kind of like look around as if she didn't know where she was or, you know, 
appear to be distracted what was what she described it as entire time again you know seems so terrifying she's telling herself you know officers i got back up it's gonna be okay and she actually carried on her a signaling device so she could call for help if she walked in an area where they couldn't they couldn't see her and so as she's in the park one of the surveillance officers observes a pontiac gto pull into terwilliger terwilliger correct me if you're from the area plaza and parked the driver was described as a tall male and he quote strolled into dunaway park and walked up a trail so the officers they're kind of ready they see somebody who's suspicious but they can't do anything until annette signals that she needs help she gets you know deeper and deeper into the park where she starts she goes on to describe there was a sound behind her a soft footfall on the dirt path she could hear the intake of breath she half turned and felt a blade pressed against her neck annette couldn't see she couldn't hear any of her backups she didn't know if they saw what was happening luckily for her they could see her signal the man randall demanded money and he held the knife against her throat she proceeded to hand him the eight marked dollar bills and then randall continues to touch her he starts assaulting her physically over the clothes she describes and then he heads back down the trail so continuing to stake out the trail they watch as he emerges from the park where they immediately jump him they get right on him thank god they arrest him and he was described as so shocked that he uh he didn't didn't even didn't even resist and you know part of the having the marked bills is they can find hey these are the eight bills we marked you know that's kind of why that's significant but he hands over the knife and portland officers ask what's your name he responds randall woodfield i go to portland state u and that is where we will pick up next week if you stuck around till the end thank you so much if you're a fan feel free to dm me on instagram at plus minus pod and that's p-o-d like podcast cut in half or tell me what you think on the Apple Podcast review section, since you can't do that on Spotify. Be a friend, tell a friend. My name is Greg, and I'll see you in the next one. Plus Minus is a show that's meant to blend together the sports world with the crime world, because for me it was one of the only ways I could find true crime interesting. By attaching the personality and career of an athlete I may have followed, or... They participated in a, in a sport I was a fan of. The show is made possible by all of you who listen. Whether it's one or one million, just remember, every career has its pluses and its minuses.